When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time for the second season of the Let It Roll podcast. This time we're doing things a little differently as we eagerly await the next volume of rock historian Ed Ward's History of Rock and Roll, which comes out in 2019. This season I'll be talking to Ed for a few episodes and also interviewing author and editor of Mojo Magazine, Paul Trinka, about several of his books on various blues and rock figures. As always, you can access our YouTube playlists and learn more about the episodes on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. This week, Ed and I will do a prequel to last season and cover the period from 1920 to 1945 that he wrote about in his book, but we hadn't discussed on the show until now. It's a fun one, as we talk about rock and roll's prehistory in the era of Victrola's live radio and swing bands. We'll talk about the first hit blues record, the first superstars of country music, and much more. Pop in those earbuds. Welcome back to Let It Roll. This is our second season. I'm Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ed Ward, author of History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963 on Flatiron Books. I hope you enjoyed the first season. And one thing we didn't get to, we went from World War II, 1945 to 1963, but we didn't talk about the 1920s and 1930s, which Ed did cover in his book. So we wanted to go back and talk about that. And Ed, one of the reasons that I sort of blinked on covering the 1920s and 30s was I just wanted to know more about the period myself. I've been a big fan of old-timey country music and blues, but there's a lot of the pop music of that period I wasn't really familiar with. So I wanted to prepare myself better to sort of challenge some of your suppositions to the extent that you will brook that. Um, but But here we are, 1920s, and I think the key thing that I got from reading the book about the 1920s that people need to understand coming from 2018 is that in the 1920s, pop music was very much a white urban middle-class thing and rural whites, African-Americans everywhere, and basically all ethnicities, Hispanics, Greeks, Ukrainians had their own folk musics and their own popular, to some extent they had popular culture, to the extent that mass broadcasting and sheet music and radio and things like that had penetrated those regions and ethnicities. But it was a very different market than it is now. And the whole idea of race music, explain what race music was. Well, race music was just a convenient way of saying music aimed at black people. Um, Because 
it was sort of laterally discovered that some black people, both in urban and uh, and rural uh, communities, had the means to play records, um, which apparently nobody had figured out for a long time. Uh, and um, so they, record companies, they developed uh, their own little sub-markets, which they, they worked, you know, uh, as, as part of the company, but maybe using different personnel. Um, this also happened at exactly the same time for um, rural white music. So you had what was known as, um, they either called it folk music or rural music or hillbilly hit parade. Um, and as, as for race music, that was a code word for black, but it also included things, you know, like um, Duke Ellington, you know, popular music um, of some sophistication, because it was felt that uh, the urban white audience that they had so successfully uh, appealed to, um, they weren't quite sure they would buy race music. So they, they kept it separate. <clears throat> they were and wrong, of course. Yeah. And you start with the date February 14th, 1920, when, and this is sort of, I guess, one of the instances where they discovered a principle you call record it and see if it sells. And, and so a, a black singer named Mamie Smith had recorded a couple of tracks sold a few hundred thousand or like almost a hundred thousand copies of the first record. And they went back and recorded something called crazy blues that sold 75,000 copies of a month and a right. million copies in a year. Right. And that was just a, that was sort of an accident, <clears throat> but there had been race records by her before, as well as uh, by um, the, the whole, you know, the, the musicians on the session and so forth, they'd all recorded before. But um, this one sort of breakout hit <clears throat> was the um, was the thing that turned people onto the name blues. Uh, there had been blues named records before. I mean, certainly W.C. Handy uh, had um, put out his uh, St. Louis blues and, and Memphis blues as instrumentals. Uh, and um, so this was just sort of, Huh, look at that, something that people are buying. And with numbers like they had, it was most certainly not um, even urban African-American customers. It was, it was obviously white people were buying this uh, supposed race record. Yeah, and a guy named Perry Bradford uh, was the, the arranger and producer, I guess you'd call that, on the record yeah, he, and led the band. he was a professional songwriter for Black Vaudeville and and the black stage to the extent that there was one. And it was put out by OK Records, which is spelled O-K-E-H. And I always thought that was pronounced OK, but it's got to be OK, right? Well, yeah, but it's also um, uh, the initials. Oh, dear, I don't have this in front of me. The initials of the guy who founded the label. And was that, um, let's see, it's a German name. I'm looking in the book. It was Heinemann or something like that, because they go on into uh, all kinds of ethnic music but we can yeah get i mean nobody knew what was selling and and nobody really knew whether there were enough ukrainians in in i don't know pittsburgh chicago new york to um make 
putting out Ukrainian popular music um, viable. It, it was less viable. Um, it was Otto K. Heinemann. That was yeah, his name. that's it. Yeah, and so yeah, and so I assume that like they're just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And there's no, I mean, you know, black people are the most uh, oppressed and despised ethnicity in America, and if that sells to other people, why wouldn't other things? At the same time, of course, you'd already had a seventy-year industry of with minstrelsy and Stephen Foster and everything. People knew that African American music had a, an appeal, but why not try other ethnic groups? You never know. Right, exactly, and and that, we're very lucky that uh, some people tried this because there's a trove of seventy-eights now that um, uh, document much less known things: Yiddish theater and. Um, like I said, the Ukrainians, Greeks. I have I have Greek seventy eights that de- date from the twenties. Um, yeah, why not? Yeah, Yiddish music, et cetera, et cetera. But most immediately, what Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues hit triggered was a wave of other blues singers, almost all of whom were also named Smith. Most famously, Bessie Smith. Right, but there were also many others. Um, yeah, I mean, they were actually blues singers. Uh, you listen to crazy blues, it's not a blues. Explain what a blues is for people who don't know. Well, I, I'm reluctant to do that because there's so many exceptions. But the standard eight-bar blues is in an AAB format so that you, you repeat the first line and then resolve it and resolve the music harmonically with the third line. You know, woke up this morning, blues all around my bed. You say that again, and then you say, I, I do believe these blues are the worst I've ever had. Not a great rhyme on my part, but those are what we call floating um, lines. Floating lines would go from song to song. Right. There, there were things that, that you hear that a lot on country blues songs where the guy doesn't have enough of a song to um, make a you know, a story or a coherent statement. So you close out the thing, you know, where he says, I believe I'll go down the road or something like that. But these these things have been around forever. Yeah, and I don't want to dive too much into that because the show is really about the social, technological, and business history of the music more than the musicology. But I think that's important because Crazy Blues is not a blues. It's got blues elements. And it's just like W.C. Handy's St. Louis Blues, which has blues elements but isn't, you know, the classic proverbial three-chord, 12-bar, right. eight-bar blues. There, there are also uh, certain things like the flatted third and fifth, which contribute to the sound. Um, you won't find that, you know, in a Greek rhombetica performance or something. This was um, pretty much exclusively African-American. Yeah, and we're, we're planning on deep diving into the pre-1920s period, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, that kind of stuff, you know, because I think as somebody like me who's a middle-aged rock fan, we're raised sort of thinking that the blues are this primordial musical form that that goes all the way back to Africa, and I think some right, scholarship the, shows... The, the, this image of the slaves getting off the ship singing the blues, you know, oh, Lord, you here I am in the new country and oh you know the massa is going to beat me and all this kind of stuff the blues came into being as nearly as anybody can figure after 1900 right after 1900 but 
1900 is the date that they usually use to say how old blues is. And before that, of course, there was a lively uh, tradition of both the songs, ballads, um, and of course, religious and and um, social music, you know, play party songs, uh, dance songs with nonsense lyrics, stuff like that. Yeah. And so so to me, it's very stimulating to think of the blues as a relatively new form that people are still playing with. And since it took so long for new music to reach a saturation point in this period, I mean, you'd, you'd had recording for maybe tw- what, 20 years, something like that, before 1920, and radio doesn't become a major thing until the middle of this decade. So it it takes a long time for people to get the latest hits. Even if these things were being played on the radio, which they weren't, but even if they had been, um, the networks weren't really set up yet. There were a whole point, well, we both live in Austin. Um, Austin didn't have a radio station until god i can't remember exactly when um but it was like mid 30s at least i mean it was lady bird johnson opened it and she did that uh by hooking up with a network so uh, there was one radio station and that network had a monopoly on um broadcast in the capital of texas and I think it's useful to compare radio in the 20s as sort of like Bitcoin now or the way the internet was in the late 80s or 90s, where there's a few nerds who are really into it, had these crystal headsets, but it's clearly something that's catching on. I mean, it, there's more well, and more nerds, and then it blows up in a commercial application. I think you're a little bit off on the on the nature of the uh, receivers. Um, yeah, crystals were used, but they were refined pretty early on and um radio itself was uh, i would say by 1920 it certainly there was electrical tuning and and much more sophisticated circuitry uh, but you're right it did grow out of a certain nerd the the kid with the cat's whisker scratching on the uh, crystal to see what he could draw in but uh, there was amplified radio i mean you could sit if you had enough money to buy a decent receiver, you could sit in your living room and play the music for everybody to hear. They'd have to be sort of close to the receiver, um, and the speakers weren't that large or powerful and certainly didn't have great fidelity. But um, there was electrical radio, yes. Cool. And so one one person, we talked about Mamie Smith, but the person that really, to the best of our knowledge, perfected that form is a woman named Ma Rainey who didn't record until what 1923 right but she sort of created that template of the female blues singer well yes I mean she was with the rabbit's foot excuse me rabbit's foot minstrels which was a long-standing black vaudeville troupe Uh, she Ma and Pa Rainey were the destroyers of the blues um that was the, the handle that they used. And this was going all the way back to the early 20th century. Um, they, um, I believe, they didn't mean they were destroying the musical form, but they were such a great act, they would destroy you, destroy your blues. If you felt bad, you'd go see them and you'd feel better. But Ma Rainey, I don't know whatever happened to Pa. She was the one who held on uh, long after Pa disappeared. And um, she was also, uh, because of the fact that she had this big act, 
at the Rabbit's Foot Minstrels, um, which was a touring uh, organization. She had other uh, young women uh, in her act, and they also sang. She was, you know, she she would mentor them, and then they would eventually go off and uh, work with others. The Rabbit's Foot Minstrels held on for a long time. Rufus Thomas, as a young man, and, and I mean a kid, uh, he he worked for them. And I thought that was one of the most amazing things I discovered through this book was like Rufus Thomas going from literal minstrel shows all the way up through working with Sam Phillips at the beginning of Sun Records with Bearcat and then to Stax Records. I mean, he's like a one man history of African-American music in the first part of the 20th century. He's a one man history of Memphis music for sure. I mean, you know, he probably had Furry Lewis's phone number as well as Steve Cropper's. Yeah, and it's so it's like the more you get into this stuff, just the more it's like a web of connections. And one of the connections, Ma Rainey didn't record for OK. She recorded for Paramount. And right. you introduce a character, J. Mayo Inc. Williams, who right. was was he African-American? He was. Um, and he, he's, he's a really weird character. He's a graduate of Brown University, which is in, uh, I believe, Boston. No, it's in Rhode Island. Rhode Island? Providence, okay. yeah. Yeah, okay. But that's an Ivy League school. Yes. He played for the National Football League short for a short period of time. Yeah. And then he winds up in Chicago doing God knows what. I don't believe there's, pro there's enough documentation to actually do a good biography of him, but I would certainly love to know the whole story because he shows up uh, the last reference i saw to him was producing a um, rather terrible blues record for columbia records uh, in the late 1940s and um, muddy waters was hired as a sideman but he yeah. he he was a hustler he in chicago he he presented himself as a guy who knew everything about black music and that's how he presented himself to paramount records you know there's a big market out there that you people aren't exploiting and it's my people and i understand everything about it i know everybody and if you hire me i will bring you people that you can record and you'll sell records he backed it up yeah well it wasn't exactly a, a mark of genius to um haul in ma rainey i mean Everybody knew she was, every black person knew she was a popular entertainer. And everybody knew but, that she wasn't recording. But he also got the jazz scene with Fletcher Henderson, King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, Jolly Roll Morton. Well, that was because he was a young man. These were people he was going to see. And, you know, once again, the, the, the reluctance of the record companies to uh, record people like that uh, just made his job all that easier. Paramount didn't know what they were doing. They would never have hired him if they did. Um, and it's a good thing that they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, and it worked out. And it's like, at some point, I'd like to get into the jazz thing, but it's very much, you're writing a history of rock and roll and the, and the trees bifurcate. At the time, I don't think people saw a big difference between jazz and blues. They were just seen as African American musical forms. The the guy to um, the guy to zero in on with that is um, Lonnie Johnson. Ah, yes. Lonnie Johnson was a guitar player of great fluidity, and um, he recorded as a blues singer. 
uh, he recorded as an arranger and he recorded as a guitar soloist with the likes of Duke Ellington. You know, you listen to that original um, uh, recording of The Mooch, which was one of Ellington's earliest hits, and, and there is a little dialogue of lead guitar and orchestra in the middle of that. And that's Lonnie Johnson. That's fascinating. I mean, so people were walking back and forth, and a lot of these female blues singers would, uh, I mean, they're claimed by jazz very often. You know, you'll oh, see yeah. Bessie Smith written up as a jazz singer, and that whole tradition, you know, Billie Holiday, uh, Sarah Vaughan, et cetera, comes in a large part from Bessie Smith and others, Ma Rainey. Um, but Dinah uh, Washington. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Dinah Washington was a, as far as I knew, was a pop singer. Um, if I'd been a little bit older, I probably would have thought of her as a jazz singer. And she recorded an entire album as a tribute to Ma Rainey in the hmm. 1950s. Wow. And it's funny in this period because Al Jolson is going to be, of course, the marketed as the most famous jazz singer, which in no way, shape or form connects to our story. No, he. I think he was uh, marketed as a vaudeville sensation. But the, well, I was just referring the, to the, the, movie the reason you're thinking about that is that he made the first uh, talkie, the first movie with a soundtrack. And it was called The Jazz Singer. And it was about a Jewish kid who fell in love with jazz. He was the son of a cantor. And his dad opposed his becoming a, uh, a jazz singer. But he went ahead anyway, and he was successful. And in the end, the family's all hugging each other and blah, blah, blah. Um, but he was, he was much more famous as a vaudeville singer, introducing songs like Mammy, you know, and um, My Yiddish Mama. Yeah, and 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 uh, Sunny Boy and and all that kind of stuff. And I don't want to diss Jolson, but he's just somebody who hasn't really made the leap into the 21st century as far as his audience. But he was this huge, massive pop phenomenon. Oh yeah, and up until his death in the 1950, and and really, like you say, he was a live performer first, but he successfully. I mean, the jazz singer was a huge mass massive success as a movie invented the talkies and then you know he starred in other movies as was on radio and even some early television but so that's what one thing i think people listening to us need to keep in mind is that pop music was dominated by people like al jolson and then and paul whiteman who called himself the king of jazz and so there's this whole other context in which the stuff we're talking about is an almost an underground market i mean it's it's african-american fans but also like i would use the word minority yeah that's an excellent excellent description it's it's a minority taste it might you might be a you know white protestant guy in illinois who likes jazz and um but that's a minority among other white protestant guys in illinois yeah and and like I said, many of whom would say they like jazz, but what they mean by jazz is Paul Whiteman or maybe even Al Jolson. But back to Ink Williams. I think the person that he signs and records that's the most relevant to our thread is a Texan named Blind Lemon Jefferson. Right. Jefferson was one of these many, many, the, the, the one man, one guitar act um, was very portable. And so these people like uh, Blind Lemon, like, you know, Robert Johnson, they traveled a lot because you couldn't, you know, just stay in one town and make a living. If you could get on the road, that's what you did. And um, 
uh, Mayo Williams found Lemon Jefferson in Chicago. I mean, he, he didn't go out on scouting trips. He basically rode the railroad back and forth from Wisconsin to Chicago and eventually got Paramount to open a recording studio and an office in Chicago, so he didn't even have to leave town. But Chicago had enough black people by then that it was attracting loads and loads of itinerant performers and um, touring acts like, you know, the, the Rabbit Foot Minstrels and so forth. But, you know, when when these acts started traveling, you know, they, they would hit these big cities. So he, he found he found him on a street corner in Chicago. And turned him into a really well-selling recording artist. Well, I, th- there was something about him. He was unique. There was nobody, when he made his first record, nobody else was recording the one-man, one-guitar, black blues singer. A, a lot of um, Lemon's stuff wasn't even blues. He, he did some. Um, but he's a transitional figure from what we call the songsters. Uh, songsters were never popular, uh, except in black communities. But uh, as far as the mass media is concerned, the blues uh, was the first to present these kind of soloists. I just wanted to mention Mississippi John Hurt because he's a favorite of mine. He that's a songster. That's a songster. He he has some songs that are blues. He he's a little bit further back along the transition than Lemon Jefferson was. Although we'll we'll never really know much about Lemon Jefferson. I mean, he was a really eccentric guy, and um, he died fairly young under mysterious circumstances. I mean, he was actually making money from his records. Not much, because they didn't have the idea of royalty back then, but um, that was only for songwriters. But he was making enough from sales, and Paramount was paying him, that there's no reason that he should have frozen to death on a street corner somewhere. That is awful, but it continues all the way up to Amy Winehouse in our own period. I mean, this, yeah. this, this connection of... The, the musician's life being a short one is certainly a thread we talked about a lot uh, in the last season of the show. And, you know, Jefferson's a classic example. And his repertoire has lived on. I mean, you talk about Matchbox Blues, which Carl Perkins covered, the Beatles later covered. But he also did, you know, See That My Grave Is Kept Clean, which Bob Dylan and Led Zeppelin uh, did versions of Dylan Payne royalties, Led Zeppelin not. But um that's a sidetrack. But uh, he also directly influenced other people like T-Bone Walker and Josh White. And were they also on Paramount with Ink Williams? No, they, they um, let's see, uh, T-Bone, he came in, I think he was on DECA. He certainly had connections to the Basie band. I think he may have seen himself as the Lonnie Johnson for Basie because Lonnie Johnson was already dealing with um, Ellington. But he played electric guitar. Yeah, I and mean, T- the, T-Bone's like a direct antecedent of Chuck Berry. Yeah, and, and it goes from, from Lemon Jefferson. Well, they were both Texans. They were both Dallasites, for that matter. It pains me to give Dallas the credit, but we have to do it. Oh, Dallas has plenty of good stuff to talk about, but it's true. It's not true. as much as other places. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I mean, it's no Houston, but then... The reason for it is it's landlocked, and, and Houston is a is a port city. Port cities always have much livelier music scenes because sailors go in and out. 
Yeah, and Chicago is also a port city with the lake and the Mississippi River nearby. So, uh, you know, it's it not also, It was also a rail hub, which is very important. Yeah, and so Chicago functions as this magnet, but uh, you talk about Inc. not having talent scouts, but soon a guy named H.C. Spear in Mississippi kind of makes himself into a regional talent scout, maybe the well, first, at least in our kind of music. He was he was selling Paramount Records um, as well as ARC Records, which was the American Recording Company, which was a division of uh, Columbia, and uh, I believe he was also selling Decca Records. And you would deal with these people with these labels when they they would send. Um, they, there was no such thing as a one stop where they uh, a, a one company would be handling a lot, lot of different labels. You had your Columbia guys show up, you had your Paramount guys show up um, and try to sell you new records. And um, he he would sell these to uh, locals um, in Mississippi and they would take them home and play them and they would come back and they say, oh, I can do that. So he got himself a, a recording setup, you know, a lathe cutter and, and a microphone. And um, it was still acoustic recording. It wasn't electric. So um, he had it in the back of his of his shop, and uh, he would send demos off to people. He he would when the when the guy from Paramount came in, he'd say, you know, when you go back up to Wisconsin, or maybe you could mail these up to Wisconsin. But here's some some fellows I met around here who uh, I think are pretty good. I think they should be making records. And he hit quite a trove of talent there uh, coming out of the Mississippi Delta. Charlie right. Patton, he was in the right place at the right time. Skip James, uh, the Chester Burnett, who would later become famous as Helen Wolf, uh, Roebuck Staples, who's later uh, you know, going to find the Staples Singers. And it's not he found, just... He found Robert Johnson. Yeah, I was building up to that because you know Johnson's uh, the big name, but it wasn't just the Delta Blues when he also cut... Uh, Jug bands, which is another tradition called hokum, and uh, and the, and Very I think popular in Black Vaudeville, especially around Memphis. And the Memphis Jug Band is the best example. Although I don't think Spear recorded them, right? I I really don't know. They were with RCA, so I I think probably that was a spinoff of the uh, the sessions there in in Virginia. The I yeah. think it was a spinoff of the Bristol sessions. Yeah, and and we'll with RCA. Get to and and I want to get to Bristol in a second, but we have to backtrack a little bit right, right. and talk about white music. But I also want to mention that uh, Tommy Johnson and Scrapper Blackwell and Leroy Carr were also recorded by Spear. And that type of music was more popular at the time than the Delta Blues that proved to be more influential on rock music. Right, exactly. Uh, Scrapper Blackwell, I mean... These people sold tons and tons and tons of records. If they hadn't drank so much, I mean, they, they um, Leroy Carr, Scrapper Blackwell, Carr died really young, um, but they would they could record anything and it would sell. You know, another um, another uh, Memphis uh, group that was uh, like that was the Mississippi Sheiks, another hokum band. Yeah, a, a, the Chatwell a, a, family, a jug band variant, and I think. You know, one thing that uh, just a sort of a distorted impression I got reading about musical history through the lens of rock music criticism is an overemphasis on Delta Blues because right. the stuff that was really popular 
and that you know related musics that was blues based or it had similar antecedents as blues that stuff had a massive influence on the next generation of performers even if maybe they listened more closely uh to robert johnson or others i think sort of robert johnson's influence skips a generation but yes because he wasn't popular in his day he had one semi-hit records terraplane blues and then the rest of the stuff didn't sell at all and then he was murdered before he could go to carnegie hall and participate in the famous uh from spirituals to swing show that um and now john hammond put together um in new york in the late 30s but i want to at this point backtrack to white rural music didn't start in 1920 it started in 1922 and somebody from my home neck of the woods eck robertson of amarillo texas shows up him with henry gilliland Gilliland, uh, yeah gilliland go to new york city and invite themselves to a recording studio right well they just won a um they, they just basically tied in a fiddle contest somewhere in virginia and they said well you know we got our prize money and um we've got uh enough to get to New York and, and we ought to tell them we're the best fiddlers in the South. And, you know, we, we should be selling records. So they, uh, their gimmick was one of them had a union uniform and the other had a Confederate uniform and they went up there and they said, you know, the South is united and, and we're the best fiddle players there are. And the receptionist had, had no idea what to make out of this. So she called somebody and they said, yeah, let's cut a couple of tracks. And then they didn't issue them for a couple of years, apparently. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was the first, the first, uh, country music recording. And then it occurred to them at the time when, uh, RCA went looking for more of this stuff. Uh, th- there were others, um, the, the, um, the Stoneman family were, yep. were very, very popular. Um, and, and that was a, a rural act. I'm not really too clear on the the genesis of the Stonemans, but they were all this guy and his family and the uh, older kids um, had spouses who were also members of the group. Uh, I saw the Stonemans in um, 1970 in uh, San Francisco and Pops was still there. He wasn't doing much. He was sitting in a chair. He had a banjo in his hands, but the rest of them, they had electric instruments and they clog danced and, it was a really weird thing, and they were still on RCA records. Stoneman was the inducement for people to get into the um, the uh, Bristol sessions. They they uh, had him cut a record in front of a reporter from the local newspaper, and then they said, "This man made ten thousand dollars last year." And, and you know, people went, God, that could be me. Yeah, and I want to get to Bristol for sure, because that's the big bang of country music. But before right. we get there, there's another Texan to talk about, Marion T. Slaughter, who uh, changed his name to Vernon Dalhart after two Texas cities. I, I learned that from your book. I didn't know that before. And wrote a, re- recorded a song called The Prisoner's Song, right. which, uh, you know, if you listen to Eck Robertson's records today, that is wild fiddle music. It's really more very pure Scots-Irish reels. It's not much relationship to African-American music. Um, And Vernon Dalhart's Prisoner's Song is really more of a 1920s pop ballad. It's a story song. I believe that he must have learned that off of a piece of sheet music or uh, worked with a a professional songwriter. 
Yeah, because it's 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 not what you if you listen to the other stuff that was being recorded, it's not really rural music. It's a pop song, but it had certain country elements, and he sang with a southern accent. Right. It was an, it was it was sort of the crazy blues of country music because this was a massive massive hit. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a very he, he also came out of vaudeville. Um, vaudeville, I mean, is almost unknown today. I, I guess a lot of people don't even know what it was, but um, it was variety on a stage. You would go in and, and there'd be comedians, there'd be dancers, there'd be fire eaters, there'd be animal acts, you know, and Mamie Smith. And well, it depends, you know, because there were all different kinds of vaudeville and um, some were more sophisticated than others. Some were really bare bones, you know, things like the Hattacall Caravan where the main th- it was a medicine show same as used to roll up in towns on a on a buckboard uh, yeah and, and a lot more sophisticated well I, i'm looking forward to getting more into the medicine show dis- versus vaudeville distinction because i until i read this book of yours i i didn't really hadn't thought about the idea the fact that vaudeville theater didn't penetrate to rural america much at all it had um, production values you needed lights you needed an orchestra a theater you know? Yeah, you don't want to take that on the road to, you know, Buckthorn, Kentucky. Which, you know, might not even have a road <laughs> to right, get exactly. there. And, and so, you know, I think that's important. And, and yeah, definitely people don't know vaudeville. I was talking to a millennial kid over Thanksgiving. He didn't know vaudeville. And my usual connection to vaudeville is the Marx Brothers or Jack Benny. Hadn't heard of any of those people. Right. And so, um, So that's definitely sort of a lost connection. But the Prisoner's Song leads to a lot of country music being recorded, some of it more the fiddle-reel type stuff, Fiddlin' John Carson, a classic medicine show performer and Uncle Dave Macon, who was already on the radio with the Grand Ole Opry in uh, in Nashville. What, WSN? Is that the radio? Yeah, WSM. The radio station and Pops uh, Stoneman, Grayson and Witter. But that triggers a guy named Ralph Peer, who had been involved in discovering Louis Armstrong, uh, earlier, R- was it RCA Victor or just Victor at this Victor. point? Victor, it was RCA Victor. They they're like send him out. And one thing PBS had a had a special about that covered Pierre. I can't remember the name of the series right now, which is my bad. But their theory was that the record companies were pretty eager for new markets because radio was cutting into the urban market for recorded music. And well, so, it was also, it was also um, there were also lots of rural stations because it proved to be a, a very good community building medium. And it was also a, um, a medium where you could learn things like what's the price of wheat today? Because harvest is coming up. Are we going to make money on our crop or not? It was very, very important, very important to farmers. And so Ralph Pierce, in this context, he picks Bristol because Ernest Stoneman is from that region, which is right on the border of Virginia and Tennessee. It's very it's not on the border. The border is in it. Yeah. State right. Street, State Street, one side of the street is Kentucky, uh, is uh, Virginia and the other side is Tennessee. And, uh, and this is pretty remote country. There's, I mean, it, but at the same time, it's also as urban as that area gets to me, the idea that a guy would put up, put an ad in the paper probably several papers and get the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers in the same weekend. Yeah. I mean, that is just, I mean, that's why they call it the big bang of country music. 
Well, and what's interesting there is that these people were not folk musicians. They were consciously singer-songwriters. Now, the Carter family, there's some controversy there as to where they got their songs, and they did have this black chauffeur who, uh, once they became famous, and and naturally they couldn't stay in the same hotels, so they'd get to where they were going to perform, and he would disappear, and he'd go to churches, he'd go to black bars, and he'd pick up music, and he'd bring it back, and then he he and A.C. Carter would... Um, A.P. A.P., sorry, yeah, would... Um, Work on the uh, work on an arrangement. AP would copyright it. Yeah, and and a lot of the research. There's been tons of research done on the Carter family, and a lot of the songs that they were finding, not just African Amer- from African American performers, but also songs they were finding from white performers, they thought were traditional country. They thought these were songs as old the hills, but it turns out most of them were sheet music from the 1890s to the 19 teens. Right, and uh, so Wildwood Flower being the their biggest hit and, and the greatest example of that. And by the time they get it, the lyrics have become virtually unintelligible. Right. And they run with it. But the thing was, Sarah Carter had this incredible voice and Mabel Carter had this really distinctive guitar style. Actually and- not that distinctive. If you were a black churchgoer, because that's how you did the hymns. You would line out in the bass, the melody of the hymn, first introduce the song and then people had their hymnals but there was no music in them so they yeah. would re- they would sing the lyrics once they'd internalized the tune that's but called church was... style and that is also something their chauffeur brought back to them huh that's fascinating and 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 ap had this knack for taking these songs that he found and arranging them into something we would recognize as the modern pop song format right which even if you listen to pop hits from the 1920s, that's still being worked out. You'll listen to something uh, like the University Drag, and it's got multiple bars of instrumental music before it gets to the lyrics. And right, so, because there wasn't much of a song in a lot of those cases. Yeah, uh, but the Carter family you know, formalized the song format that we would recognize today. And then Jimmy Rogers is sort of like a one-man melting pot combining Swedish yodels, Hawaiian steel guitar and a ton of African American influences. Right. That that was because his uh, he was a, a really sickly kid. His whole life he was he was very sickly. Uh, he'd contracted tuberculosis very early and um, didn't spend much time in school. Uh, his dad would take him to work because his dad was uh, a guy who worked for the railroads, and so he would hang around with the railroad guys. And uh, some of them were white and some of them were black. And he just sponged up a lot of this material. He took his material from anywhere he could. And uh, including a a guy who was doing life in prison. He he took a bunch of songs from him. (laughs) It is a hard, cold world. And I guess it always has been. But he he gave him credit, but he didn't give him any money. The warden might have had a sticky, sticky fingers if he had tried. But I mean, one thing about the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers that's, I think, distinct from other a lot of other people we've talked about. I mean, other than maybe Bessie Smith that we've talked about. I mean, obviously, a lot of the jazz people and some of the blues guys. But both of these people put together extensive discographies of really great stuff. And and RCA, I rather Victor indulged them in this, and they also promoted them together. I mean, there are a couple of early talkie films um, 
featuring the Carter family. And there's one called the Carter family meets Jimmy Rogers. And uh, it, it's a, it's a set, you know, it's like a rural log cabin and, and uh, Jimmy comes walking up and sits down on the porch and they come out and greet him. And, you know, it's, it's um, real interesting to see this early way of, of it's, it's marking. There's no other word for it. Yeah. They would put it uh, on f- it would be a short piece of film that would would air. You know, you go to the movie theater and you might see a cartoon, a newsreel, uh, a B movie, and, and a feature and a serial, and that they would throw that in the mix. And his famous uh, video of or film of waiting for a train uh, is is probably the classic of the genre. These guys, the Carters and, and Rogers, define modern or modern country because there's a clear line from 1927 on is what we think of as country music and right the, the, the trade magazines called it folk music but it was absolutely not it was just as much composed uh intentionally targeted music uh as was coming out of you know um being crosby and and that immediately spurs imitators like anything that's commercially successful and musically appealing will and one of the interesting strains is is what you call western music with gene autry uh the avatar of that roy rogers right. also. He, he started off as a jimmy rogers imitator I've, I've got an album of his early tracks for uh, columbia where it's embarrassing how much he's trying to sound like Jimmy Rogers. You want to just grab him and go, Hey dude, sound like Gene Autry. (laughs) And that's something that a lot of really gifted performers. That's something we talked about, like with Ray Charles, somebody who's that gifted is trying to be Nat King Cole for the first several years of his career because he can do it. And uh, Charles Brown. Yeah. And, and Autry perfects his form in the context of movies and creates a whole new genre. I mean, the reason we call it country and Western and people laugh in the blues brothers when they say, what kind of music do you like? We like both kinds, country and Western, but at one time it was Western was a distinct genre. Yeah. It it had to do in part with the singing cowboys, um, which were introduced via um, films. Uh, So, that might be called the Burbank branch of uh, of Western music. But uh, there was also the Sons of the Pioneers, which had a couple of brothers, I believe, from Texas. Where they had a German surname. They were the Fars and um, fiddle and uh, and guitar. And, and they were serious swing artists, um, a- as was um, Bob Wills, who is yeah, the and- ultimate culmination of that branch of Western music. Yeah, and I want to mention Roy Rogers, who was in the Sons of the Pioneers and became a singing cowboy, uh, the, right. really the big rival to Gene Autry. But yeah, Bob Wills is the guy, uh, I think, out of all the people that you talk about in this chapter in the 20s and 30s, he and Louis Jordan are the two that have, to my mind, the biggest claim to be the direct grandfathers of rock and roll. I, I, right, except that Wills came out of Milton Brown and his musical Brownies which was a Fort Worth-based band. And they came out of the Light Crest Doughboys. Which, which Wills was, was in as well. Right. Well, yeah. Um, basically, Wills formed his band from Light Crest Doughboys who had quit because they hated Pappy Leo Daniel, who was the uh, guy who managed them and had political aspirations. And also, there were the remnants of the musical Brownies 
which after um, Milton Brown died in an automobile accident, um, they were up for work. Some of them became um, light crust doughboys, but Wills eventually um, gathered them together into his own band, and, and he got some of the very best instrumentalists. Yeah, because he, he knew the one thing he couldn't do was well, two things he couldn't do: he couldn't play the fiddle, and he couldn't sing. Although he tried both, uh, so he <laughs> he knew that, that if if you can't do the job, get the best man you can afford to hire. And he yeah, did. and Bob Wills is really a singular figure in American music history because he's not a gifted performer, but he was an incredible band leader. And anything with the Bob Wills name on it has got the Bob Wills quality seal of approval, you know, and records for decades and went through tons of musicians. I mean, the secret sauce was Bob Wills. And I think the secret sauce of Western swing was a little bit of polka music that put the beats on the twos and the fours. That and Wills' obsession with blues. I mean, I, I once spent, I guess the better part of a week with the remaining, um, Texas Playboys, and uh, I remember uh, Al Strickland, the piano player, and I stayed up late at night talking about the past, and he said, man, we'd pull into a town, and Bob would just grab a cab and say, take me to Colored Town, and then he'd he'd find a place that sold records, and he'd say, what do you got by Bessie Smith? What's new with uh, Benny Goodman? What what do you got in in here, anyway? And the, the guys, and he'd come back to the hotel with, you know, a dozen... 15 new records and whip out this portable phonograph and play them and listen to them. I mean, he not only recorded um, black blues songs like. Um, well, his Osage Stop, his first record, is a, a variation on something by the Memphis Jug Band. Right. Uh, I, I, I was thinking of another record um, Milk Cow Milk Blues. Oh, uh, yeah. Coco yep. Arnold. But he also recorded uh, White Heat which is an instrumental by the Benny Goodman Orchestra. And I've heard both versions, and I'm sorry. I think Bob got it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not surprised because, you know, it wasn't just record stores. When the Texas Playboys and Count Basie's band were in the same city, they would jam together all night long. Right. And he and, also, one of his later bands um, used to jam with Ornette Coleman when they came through Fort Worth. He was just a little <laughs> teenager. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I read this article in, in the Wire magazine, which is typical British um, thunderheadedness, where they're interviewing uh, Ornette, and, and he says, they said, who did you used to play with as, as a youngster? And he says, oh, the Texas Playboys would come through. They was beboppers, you know. And instead of the um, interviewer picking that up and running with it, which I certainly would have done, they went, oh, and what else, you know? Yeah, they didn't know. Another opportunity lost. Playboys were. And yeah, and those, uh, the speaking of opportunity lost, integrated jam sessions like the ones between the Texas Playboys and the Count Basie band, that stuff was never recorded. There was no room for an integration. There was some integration. Benny Goodman was playing with Charlie Christian and others, right. but it was very limited. Well, and there that- was also um, Lonnie Johnson and Joe Venuti. Yep. Uh, who recorded under pseudonyms, you know, Blind Charlie Smith, and I, I forget what it was. But th- this was just a duo, a violin, swing violin, and um, guitar that was 
really remarkable. There's a whole bunch of those recordings. Yeah, and so if I could, if I had a time machine and could go back to that era, definitely the jam sessions between the Playboys and Count Basie's group would be right up there with the birth of Bebop or the birth of Bluegrass, neither of which was documented because of the recording strike we talked about in the first series. Um, so it's a lost opportunity. And one thing I really... I had listened to a lot of Count Basie from the 50s, 40s and 50s on, but I'd never really listened to 30s stuff. That's and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that is that is. That's awesome where you got stuff. T-Bone Walker. That's where you got you know Lester Young. But the beat is never as heavy as on the Bob Will stuff. The beat's always a jazz beat. On you the know how hard it is to get white people to dance correctly. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And so that's where I would give Wills the edge over Basie as far as being a direct influence. Although Chick Webb uh, is also maybe a great-grandfather of rock and roll by way of his sideman, Louis Jordan, who goes on to become the other grandfather of rock and roll. Yeah, he, he was completely unique. He came out of nowhere, possibly outer space, to uh, what what he refined was narrative in um, a jazz blues context. Um, a lot of his stuff is harmonically very, very simple. So it, it could fit in under the blues uh, template. But a lot of it is lyrically very sophisticated. You know, um, ain't nobody here but us chickens, beans and cornbread, uh, the whole series of don't get married records, you know, look out, sister, look out, beware, brother, beware, fast talking, uh, literate lyrics that, um, that taught Chuck Berry how to write songs. Right. Yeah. Chuck, Chuck Berry with his rapid fire songs about cars and uh, and other things i mean it, it, that was the main influence i'd say well it, it was barry's desire to tell the stories uh the way that louis jordan was except <clears throat> for a more contemporary audience but i i mean back in the uh i guess right after i graduated from high school in 1965 i was i was working uh at a summer camp with a uh, in the kitchen with an all-black crew, and um, we'd argue about music at night. And I remember one of them, um, they, they were from South Carolina, and, and one of them was denigrating another guy's musical taste. Oh, man, don't play me that old Caldonia-fied stuff like your grandmother listens to. And I was going, <laughs> Caldonia-fied? But Caldonia was one of his big hits, Louis Jordan. Yeah. Yep. I'd never even heard of Louis Jordan at that point. And here's this kid. He not only knew him, he hated him. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was his parents' or grandparents' music. And right. yeah, but and Louis Jordan, I think, is one is sort of a dark star performer who really, to me, ought to be lionized right up there with Robert Johnson or Louis Armstrong or Bob Wills as one of the architects of American 20th century music. Oh, absolutely. I think it was must have been bad management. Um, I almost got a chance to see him, but he died the week he was going to perform. There was a, a hotel in San Francisco that had a, a program where they brought in these old guys from the 30s to perform. Um, I, I saw Father Hines there, Earl Hines, uh, who recorded on some of the earliest uh, Louis Armstrong records. And then they were going to bring in Louis Jordan. And we all got real excited. This would have been in the 70s. Um, 
but uh, but he died the week he was supposed to come in, so I never did get to see him. But he was still on the road back then, and he was playing places like you know these hotels. It was not exactly the superstar circuit. It wasn't even a nostalgia circuit. It was just one of the lower rank, uh, ranks of uh, show business. Yeah, I would suspect, I, I'd be curious to know, I bet his, his heirs have not managed his legacy. And I also bet that his record companies have been negligent on the legacy because well, artists... You're, you're, you'd be wrong on that because it, the, most of his recordings were for DECA. And, and they're in, MCA, and and you could you it would be very easy for you to go buy a CD of of Louis Jordan's greatest hits. They've kept it in print, but they haven't marketed it. They haven't, you no, know. I, there's been no reason to. I mean, who who are his direct descendants? They'd be more obscure roots rock bands. You know, there'd be people like Asleep at the Wheel. A lot oh, of I'd have to argue with you there. I mean, Asleep at the Wheel is Western swing. And and Louis they Jordan. Also did me, Louis Jordan. Yeah, they, that's true. But uh, you know, Louis's jump blues to me feeds right into the Roy Brown Winoni Harris yeah. uh, period that feeds directly into Elvis. And uh, I think you know that that story has sort of been overshadowed. I think Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones come along and totally revise rock history and put right. Muddy Waters their, their and emphasis Johnson. On, on Memphis and Chicago. Uh, totally obscured stuff happening in the big cities and Louis Jordan being one of them. I mean, Louis Jordan back in his heyday, he recorded a lot with um, people like Bing Crosby. Films of his music were played at the movies. He was on the radio. He, and he did a, a bunch of uh, what they called soundies, which are short films um, specifically for black theaters. I saw a Western uh, called Look Out, Sister, Look Out, which was, his follow-up to Beware, Brother, Beware. And uh, the story is a, a typical one of, of um, the girl owns the ranch and the bad guy wants the deed and the good guys come riding in. And it's Louis Jordan and the Tiffany Five. Yeah. The, the vision of Louis Jordan on horseback with the uh, alto saxophone that he plays hooked over his shoulder as he rides the horse when I first saw that, I just screamed with laughter. He, and he, he was a very gifted comic actor. I mean, he was. He his eyes out. Oh, yeah. And oh, I yeah. think the most important thing about those films is that's one of the first times that African Americans were given a chance to play non-humiliating roles on film yeah. in America. Yeah. And well, that, it was all part of the black cinema movement. There, there, there were a lot of, of movies made specifically for black audiences in, in urban situations. I uh, can't remember the name. Of, there, there's one guy with a sort of French name. Uh, there was also, who, what, what was his name? He, was a, he sang with Duke Ellington, uh, and he was called the Tan Buckaroo. He was a, a black guy, but probably part Ethiopian, I think. They, they, I read about this um, his name will come back to me eventually. And um, very, very light-skinned. And he played in a bunch of black westerns. Hmm. I will have to Google him and, and dig that up because that's fascinating. Uh, wild, was it Wild Country Brown? No, 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 no. No, no, no. Uh, I, it, it was 
just a normal name. There was no nickname or anything with it. Yeah, we'll find it and put it on the uh, website for sure. Yeah. And w- one thing we've gotten, you know, the personalities and the performers are so fascinating. We've kind of got a feel from the sort of social, technological, business aspect. But there were some big changes from the 20s to the 30s that I want to cover. The radio matures as a form the record industry really, really struggles in the depression. Right. I mean, people like the Carter family, basically their discography just stops. Uh, well, they, they they moved to Mexico to uh, perform on the X. Yeah, which was an X-E-R-P. illegal radio station right over the Mexican border. It wasn't that, illegal. It was perfectly legal in Mexico. In Mexico. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it could be heard all over the United States. Uh, and, and they were selling... The, there was a quack doctor who ran the whole thing. It was literally sewing goat testicles into people. Right. Um, and, <laughs> you know, but so radio becomes an even bigger thing, but also because bands would play live on the radio rather than records being played on the radio. Right. But also there was electrical recording. Yes. And explain and, the difference between acoustic and electrical recording. Well, it, it's really all about brute force when you're recording um acoustically you are translating the sound waves into the mechanical act of cutting the reference disc uh only by amplification by acoustic amplification in other words you would have to shout into the microphone in order to get a good sound and and they would, instead of miking the orchestra, they, they would make these sort of um, seating arrangements so that the more delicate ones were closer to the microphone. A- and often they didn't use drums. I mean, you listen to some of the early jazz records and the drums aren't really drums. They're wood blocks or, or cardboard boxes because you couldn't bring in a trap set. You'd drown everybody else out. When it came into uh, electrical recording, it was essentially what we're doing today. It is using electronic components to transfer, amplify, and uh, then translate it back into a mechanical movement for cutting the reference disc in the days before tape. So it's a purely electronic thing, and you can get a lot more sophistication and depth of sound. You, you can hear this uh, definitely in blues and country music because there's just this radical change. Um, the, um, the Harry Smith anthology, the notorious collection of alleged folk music that was so influential with the folk music in the 50s and 60s, um, Harry Smith recorded, he, he would only do electrical recording uh, so anything that was before then was lost to him and was only rediscovered after people got familiar with the um, with the folk revival. Yeah, and in pop music, the, the big marker is the change from Al Jolson shouting to Bing Crosby crooning into the microphone. Right. Yeah, because Crosby could get right up next to it and he he could record sounds you might not actually be able to hear on stage. Well, once again, they, they had an electric um, microphone on stage. Now you could do that. Um, and that, that's why 
you know, those early Al Jolson records, when he performed, he performed through a megaphone, which is why it sounds so odd. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, all the people we've described as modern country, is that was that electric recording, the Carter family, the Bristol Sessions? No. Or was, that was acoustic. That, that was still acoustic. Huh, huh. Interesting. And and uh, Steph, our researcher, Herb Jeffries, the bronze buckaroo. That's, that's who, it, Herb Jeffries. Yep. He, he's a real about. interesting character to look up. He was still acting in the 50s. The one last uh, bit of musicology that I wanted to cover was bluegrass, which is sort of a variant thread that's going to get woven back into rock and roll much later. But it, its genesis is in the 30s with these brother acts. Right. Earl and... Uh, the Bostick brothers, the Blue Sky The Bollock brothers. The Monroe yeah. brothers. The Monroe brothers, but also uh, the ones who are the most rock and roll of all of them. Yeah, they recorded Country Boogie, and we talked about the, the yeah, Delmore the, yeah, brothers. The what? The Delmore brothers. The Delmore brothers. brothers. And they yeah, had I, a period uh, in the 30s as a classic harmony brother duo and then in the 40s with king records they record a bunch of boogie country boogie well that's because they had merle travis as a side man yep and but, also the um, market was there for that the the thing the thing about bluegrass is uh it's all acoustic which as soon as traditional country performers another jimmy rogers protege ernest tubb he began using electric instruments. He, he's like the earliest country guy I can find who used electric instruments besides the uh, steel guitar in, in his recordings. And he said that he used to play enough of the oil patches out in uh, West Texas that you couldn't be heard above the brawling and, and screaming of the drinkers in these bars. And he wanted the music to be heard, so he plugged in. So yeah. He also used drums which was verboten on the uh, Grand Ole Opry. But he didn't, I guess he didn't use them when he performed there, but he had them in his regular stage act. There wasn't as much electricity in the hills, and there was a tradition of virtuosity, which came through fiddle contests, banjos. Um, mainly fiddle and banjo are the virtuosic elements of bluegrass. And it was just Bill Monroe, when he finally broke off with his brother, and um, formed his own band that invented bluegrass. It sort of coalesced uh, a band full of virtuosos who um, played together and also competed with each other on stage. Vocals weren't nearly as important as the instrumentals. And like I mentioned, this is a transition that was not recorded. Yeah. Monroe's stuff with his brother, his brother Harmony stuff was recorded, but then there's a musician strike, and we talked about that a lot in the first season. And so, uh, Bluegrass, uh, the birth of Bluegrass isn't recorded. And the and Stanley the one, Brothers, an yes. another act that went from the from the 30s all the way through the 60s, uh, oh. and also were were important uh, Bluegrass. Yeah, and made it all the way into the 21st century with Oh Brother Where Art Thou? And well, that was one of the brothers anyway. Yeah, Ralph Stanley, and um. The one last genre I want to talk about is the Bluebird records, that style of blues with Tampa Red and Lil Green, Romance in the Dark. This was, they carried the torch for blues music with a style that is not Delta Blues. It's not 
urban blues. It's not what Muddy Waters and and uh, Howlin' Wolf would do later on. But I want to give a shout out to the Bluebird style because Tampa Red is well worth listening to. Sure, he was a, a virtuoso guitarist. But the thing is, it was sort of a studio system at Bluebird and at Bluebird, and, and they all played on each other's records. It was just that whoever was singing was the uh, the leader, or whoever. You know, sometimes the piano player would be featured in front, but the, it was basically the same band, uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, the first Sonny Boy Williamson, and uh, uh, Washboard Sam, and all those guys played on each other's records. Yeah, and that's a system that we'll see later on sort of repeated at Motown and Stax. And chess. And, and chess. In, in Chicago. I yeah, mean, you know, Willie Dixon and all those people played on each other's records. So um, we've wrapped up a lot of threads, hopefully not made too big of a tangled knot. I think we'll stop <laughs> there, cover the 20s and 30s, and we're looking forward to going back deeper into the history of African-American pop and white rural pop and mainstream American pop right. before 1920 and uh, just have some research to do and dive into that. And that is stuff that I'm actually nervous about discussing because the ugly history of American racism defines so much of that music. Yeah. Those were different times, though. It's not like right now where I am uh, in the second volume, I'm watching FM radio become more and more segregated. Yeah, and I'm and I can't wait to talk about the second volume, but you're making us wait until you finish the book and it's published in 2019. Yeah. Well, sorry, so. I can't do anything about that. <laughs> I actually didn't get any writing done today cuz I was going to do this. Well, I appreciate the time and uh, we'll be back. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Next week, join Paul Trinka and I for a discussion of his biography of Rolling Stones founder, Brian Jones. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott. 
Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 